Peace of Christ be with you. Hey, before you sit, stand up and greet each other with the peace of Christ. Introduce yourself. Use a name. Hi, I'm... You are peace of Christ. Get to know each other. Have a relationship. Yes. Peace of Christ, my, my name is Trigvi. I'll be your preacher this evening. I want you to know that I have an agenda. I don't mean any harm by it, but it's true, I'm trying to do something here. I want to invite you, I want you to experience something. This semester and really all for the rest of your life, I want to invite you to participate in reality. I want you to pull the door handle of Dimnit Chapel. I step into this storied sanctuary, this thin place. I want you to push through the wardrobe and get to the other side, but not into Narnia, but into the kingdom of God. I want you to participate in the really real world that's going on all the time for all people in all places. And it's called worship. Worship is the reality of the governing dynamics of what's going on in heaven all the time. Whether you know it or not, or believe it or not, or can see it or not, that's what's happening. Tonight I want us to see how worship has the power to center our reality and our lives. To see how we can keep God at the infinite center of our worshiping community. And how do we do this? We need a vision, a vision of worship. And vision is everything. Without vision, the people perish. Stanley Hauerwas, a Christian theologian and ethicist, said that if you want to change someone, if you want them to be different, if you want to make an impact on them, don't give them an argument. Give them a picture. He knows that if we can see it, we can live into it. And the good news is we have a picture of worship that we can live into. John, that's that one on Patmos. John, in chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation, that's the very last book of the Bible. It's a wild, crazy book in many ways. And yet, if we learn how to listen to it, if we learn how to read and interpret it, it is one of the most practical applications in all of Scripture. I mean, if you want to know the very, like, shorthand of what the book of Revelation means, it simply means this, God won, period. But in the midst of that, in the midst of that book, particularly in chapters four and five, we see something. We see something that we can step into and participate in. Tonight, I, I want to begin this series that we're going to be doing throughout the semester. Last week, Ben Patterson kind of did a big overview of it. And this week, I want to just take a little bit of chapter 4 of Revelation and focus in on one of the very first things we see. The book that we love, the bush that burns and is never consumed, says this, beginning in chapter 4, verse 1. After this, I looked, and there in heaven, a door stood open. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the spirit. And there in heaven stood a throne with one seated on the throne. 
and the one seated there looks like jasper in carnelian. Around the throne are 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones are 24 elders dressed in white robes with golden crowns on their head, and coming from the throne are flashes of lightning and rumbling and peals of thunder, and in front of the throne burn seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God, and in front of the throne there's something like a sea of glass, like crystal. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's the first six, seven verses of chapter 4 of John's vision. And the first thing that appears to John as he looks through this open doorway, this open door frame, the first thing that we see when we peer over his shoulder is a throne. This is a throne we will be well advised to become familiar with because it not only appears and reappears in nearly every chapter of the book of Revelation, we will also one day appear before it. The word throne appears 62 times in the New Testament. 47 of those references of the 62 take place in the book of Revelation, and 17 of those 47 references take place in chapters 4 and 5. The throne, the throne, is one of the big themes that comes up all the time. And if you don't know this, anytime a word or a theme keeps coming back again and again and again, that's like the Bible with a big uh, orange highlighter just saying, pay attention here. The throne. What does it mean? What does it matter? Why do we care? To understand the throne, we have to understand the author, St. John, this apostle, apostle, some described as the beloved disciple of Jesus. And John's ministry. John's my guy. Every, everyone should have a guy. He, he, some, peop, some, of the, some people's guy is Paul. Sometimes it's uh, David in the Psalms. Maybe it's Moses in the Pentateuch, but pick a guy. I, 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 I have a guy. My guy's John. I love me some John. Love it. Whenever I get lethargic, I read some John. Whenever I'm like, get lost, I need some Johnny. Got to get him back. Johnny's my model, and it's who I want to be because he braids together three ministries all at once. Three primary ministries that are important for us to understand if we're going to understand this vision of worship that John is giving to us. John is a poet, it's the ministry of the poet. John is a theologian. And John is a pastor. The poet's job is to help us see what is difficult to see. The theologian's job is to help us interpret what that means. And the pastor's job is to help us apply that to our living lives. John does all three ministries all at once, all the time. And so when I get lost in my pastoral vocation, I go back to John because he reorients me to three fundamental ministries that I think are essential for us if we're going to live into the deep reality of the governing dynamics of heaven. John is a poet. Some of you here tonight are called to be poets. I know you're here, and I want you to hear this to me clearly. This is a ministry. This is important. Your mom and dad may not think so because you'll be poor. 
but it's an important ministry. I, I mean that in tongue in cheek. I do think that someone here is called to this ministry. John, St. John, that one, he's a poet. The job of a poet is to help us recognize what is difficult to see. A poet takes words seriously as images that connect the visible and the invisible and becomes custodian of their skillful and accurate use. For a poet, a word means more than just a word. It is a key. It is a key that unlocks truth. Words of a poet not only create realities, they describe realities. Poets say a lot in a little bit of space. Poets help us see old reality from a new angle, and in that new angle discover truths we often miss or ignore or take for granted. John is not just a poet. He is a theopoetic, a master of a kingdom imagination. He uses words to help us recognize reality charged with the grandeur and glory of God. The throne, the throne is one of the primary words John uses to describe this deep reality. Through the door, he sees a throne. It's the very first thing. John uses the tools of the poetic craft, imagery, metaphor, symbols, symbols, simile, in order to capture our imaginations for Christ. He uses words like a pry bar to pull back the floorboards of reality, what philosophers might call ontology, the center of being. And when he does, he points us to see a throne and one who is seated on the throne. The worship vision of John reveals a reality in which the throne is at the center and everything else is configured in a series of outer circles around this throne, which means the one who sits on the throne is the center of all activity, of all life, of everything. John uses this image of a throne to help us see what is often invisible to the eye. God. The throne is John's symbol for the reality of God and his reigning presence over all things at all times and in all places for all people, whether they know it or not. He does this with just one word. There in heaven stood a throne. John wants us to see the throne so that we will not forget this fundamental truth that God is here that God is for us, that God is with us. Because it's easy to forget this reality, reality, isn't it? It's easy for us to go about our daily lives without giving any thought to God at all. So just forget, which is why worship is so important. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. Anyone from the Northwest here? Anyone? You have a good soul. I grew up in an island that floated in the... Uh, risky currents of the Puget Sound, a place called Whidbey Island. It sat between two mountain ranges, the Olympic Mountains and the Cascade Mountains. But to live in the Northwest is to move by mountains that no one can ever see. Clouds come off the Pacific, weighted down with moisture and water, and there's just concrete cloud cover all the time. You drive around for months, maybe years, and you never see a mountain. You're just socked in all of the time, which is why all of my people are mildly depressed and a little mossy. It's just raining down all the time. But we go about our lives and we go to the grocery store and we pay our bills and we go to class and all the time that concrete, 
cloud cover. But every once in a while, every once in a while, you'll be driving along and it's a clear day. The clouds are gone. And then you see it. You can hear people buzzing around town about it. The phrase, did you know that the mountains are out today? Because all of a sudden, what was there all the time that we couldn't see was all of a sudden made visible. Did you, did you see that the mountains are out? And all of a sudden, people start pulling along the side of the road. Big truck drivers with cigarettes dragging from their mouths start crying because they can see the serrated peaks of the Olympic mountains off in the distances, the golden globe of Mount Rainier, the, the gorgeous peak of Mount Baker. You can see it all in its glory. The mountains are out. It doesn't happen every day, but when it happens, you pull off the side of the road and you get out of your car and you just stand in the shadow of something larger than yourselves. That's what a poet does. A poet helps us see what is there all the time but is difficult to see. That's what John does in the book of Revelation. He uses words in such a way that he pulls apart, pulls apart the cloud cover so that we can see the fundamental reality of God, of God. It's easy to forget God and the cloud cover of our life. We go here and there, we go to class, we go to practice, we get groceries at Myers, we're on the internet, and we can live our life as if God doesn't exist. But in here, in this space, in worship, we see, we are reminded that we live our day-to-day -day life in the shadow of a grace larger than ourselves. We live under the shadow of the throne and with one seated on the throne. Through his poetic ministry, John is helping us see a reality that is always there, but we don't always stop to recognize. When we come into Dimnit Chapel, it's as if we are pulling off the side of the road and just for a moment, just for a moment, we give ourselves permission to see a beauty and a glory and a power so magnificent that it takes our breath away. When we come in here to worship, we are called to see the throne of God. And when we do all in his temple say glory, John is a poet, a good poet, but he's also a theologian. John's a poet, but one of his other ministries is to be a theologian for the church. And theologians help us to see that vision and to unpack what it means. And what does this throne mean to us theologically? The theological term for the throne is simply the word sovereignty. Theologically speaking, the throne is the sovereignty of God. I love this word, sovereignty. Sovereignty means that God is the supreme authority of all things for all people and at all times. All things are under his control, everything. The throne imagery conveys one of the most fundamental biblical motifs, that of God's reign as king. There is only one king for all eternity. That is what John is saying theologically. That is what the throne means. And it, means, and it has practical implications. God is the only one who is sovereign. The throne and the one who sits upon the throne means that God has the power to control all things and we do not. 
It means that God gets to be God, and we don't. I'm a self-diagnosed binger. Netflix, Amazon Prime, a few other sites that HBO, sometimes Showtime. I, I store them up in the summer in my garage lounge. I got this little projector and a drop-down screen. And late into the summer, I just watch a series after a series. I have a problem. <laughs> what do you, does any, anyone else a self-diagnosed binger? Anyone? 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 Yeah, thank you for being honest, brother. I appreciate that. Anyone got a favorite series? No, 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 no. Come on. College students, Hope College, talk to me. Yeah, what you got? Criminal Minds. Criminal Minds. I haven't seen that. You recommend this? Yes. Very good. See, you got, you're lying to me. You're not, you got stuff. Man. One of mine, one of mine, I, I won't lie to you, Game of Thrones. It was awesome. I got a... <laughs> one of the best series and worst endings ever. Bram, come on. That was lame. But the whole series was based upon this idea that there is this throne, right? Who's going to control the throne of Westeros and control the seven kingdoms? Will it be Jon Snow? Will it be the Dragon Queen? Will it be the evil Cersei? Who's going to win the throne? The whole series was this elaborate game of power dynamics, checks and counter checks, plays and anticipation and scheming and, and sword fights and everything that I love to watch in a binging series and it's over. <laughs> I love me some Game of Thrones. And the premise of the show is that one who sits on the throne can change that the throne is up for grabs. Only the one who has the power can control the throne. Whoever wins the game of power wins. And what makes the Game of Thrones so interesting is that's so much how we organize our lives. Even at a little college, it's what shapes foreign policy. It's often the kind of ways we think about the economy globalization, it's about a game of power all the time. And so Game of Thrones is really a kind of metaphor for how we are engaging our realities. But John says that's silly. That's what the throne means theologically, that's silly. There's only one throne and the one who sits upon the throne. And whatever games we play, it's all silly to God. I love how in Psalm 2, he captured, the poet captures this reality when he says, why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds asunder and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. And the Lord has them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God laughs at our game of thrones. God laughs at our scheming. God finds our, 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 all of our efforts for power comical. Why? Because all power and control are his and his alone. Theologically, the image of the throne is making an exclusive claim, and it's one that we ignore at our peril. 
The one who sits on the throne is the one and only sovereign God. There is no other, period. John's vision of worship is offering no gentle pluralism. John is peddling no soft theism. It is concrete and exclusive to the one who is seated on the throne. John's throne is an image that suggests all other thrones, whether in Rome or in Washington, all other gods, all other religions are not equal, that all paths do not lead to the same mountaintop. The throne with the one seated on the throne suggests there is only one living God, and failing to worship that God is tantamount to idolatry, which is why we have to choose carefully what throne we will worship. It is why every week we begin worship saying in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because there is only one God, God revealed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Most importantly, theologically speaking, the imagery of the throne has a profound significance for what we do in here, in worship. John's throne keeps God the infinite center of our worship. The throne reminds us that our worship is not about us. What we take away with, what we like or don't like, it's about focusing on God and what we can give to God. And that is why the throne is first in the vision. The throne keeps God the subject and object of our worship. Everything we do in worship is to get our attention off of ourselves and onto another, namely God. Every word, every prayer, every song, every sermon needs to direct our attention to the throne and the one who sits there. Often I'll hear something like this. Well, I don't really like that in worship. I didn't get anything out of this. That's not the right concern. Our concern needs to be whether God likes it, not whether we got something, but did we give something? A little later in the vision, the 24 elders around the throne fall before the throne, and the one who lives there forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne, they sacrifice their power, they sacrifice their privilege before the one of the living throne. It's not about what we get, my friends. It's about what we give. The throne keeps God the infinite center of our worship. The throne reminds us that on our worship, it is not what we get, it's what we give that counts. John is a theologian and a poet, but fundamentally, fundamentally, John is a pastor, and a good pastor helps people live their lives in fullness before God. A pastor takes theology and the visions of poets and helps them to apply it to people's lives. A good pastor takes people seriously because he takes God seriously. A pastor's call is to faithfully listen and speak with people in the conviction that their life before God is the centrality to which all else is peripheral. peripheral. So pastorally, what does this throne, this sovereignty mean for us right now? It means that there's a centering gravity to your life. I love how Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite poet, theologians, and pastors, writes, failure to worship consigns us to a life of spasms and jerks at the mercy of every advertisement, every siren, every seduction. Without worship, we live manipulated and manipulating lives. If there's no center, there can be no circumference. People who do not worship are swept into a vast restlessness, epidemic in the world with no steady direction and no sustaining purpose. 
What John's pastoral ministry wants us to see and sense is the significance of worship as a centering reality for our lives. That reality is the consequence of a throne. Everything about our wild and crazy lives rips and tears and thrusts us out into the darkness, and we can't live out there, not for long anyway. And maybe that's you right now. Maybe that's how you're feeling after two weeks of classes. Maybe you're starting to be pulled and pushed around like chaff in the wind, and it feels like you don't know where the center is. You have so much going on. Your life is moving so fast. You have the metabolism and activity of a hummingbird. You are buzzing in all directions, managing multiple commitments, relationships, classes, practices, clubs, family, friendships. You go to class, you go to your dorm room, you go to gym, you eat somewhere in there. There's that boy, there's that girl. When's that test? Tomorrow. Oh my gosh. Let's go to the movies. Let's get together. Let's break up. Let's choose a major. What are you doing with your life? Who are you? You've got pressures. Life is quick and chaotic. And soon you don't know if you're coming or you're going and you don't remember your own name. And you've dropped out of college and you spent all this money and you don't know what to do. Here's what I, here's what you do. Here's what you do. Here's what you do. Listen to the preacher. You go to worship. You come to worship and you find a center for your life again. How can you master such a life of movement and energy and chaos? Is there any hope for harmony in such a daily cacophony of commitments? First, take a deep breath. And second, you need to do something that can pull your life together that can give you a unifying purpose and a steady direction. You need something that can help you pay attention to the governing principles of your life. And that something is worshiping. Worshiping the one who sits upon the throne. The throne is where we can refocus our lives and take a deep breath and pull all of that activity together into some kind of unifying vision. Worship is an antidote to a decentered life. When we worship, we find the center of the circumference. If you are tired of sleepwalking, if you want to wake up to experience something beautiful, something noble, something brave, something worthy, make worship a habit in your life. Because in worship, we come before the deep reality, the throne, and the one who sits upon the throne. I can tell you pastorally, the centering throne is important in the good times. But it's especially important in the hard times. John is a pastor, we have to remember, who's in exile. It begins in chapter four, after this. After that, what was before this? Before this was John, I, John, your brother, who share with you in Jesus the persecution and the kingdom and the patient endurance was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day when I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet say, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyteria, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and finally to Laodicea. Before this was a vision that John has when he is in exile. He's in persecution mode. The church is anxious. It's the time of the patient endurance for Christians. Caesar, Domitian is killing Christians all throughout the kingdom. And when you are anxious, it's easy to forget that God's on the throne. And that's why John's vision is so pastorally important in this context. 
and for ours. Because sometimes when life isn't going the way we want or the way we expect or the way we prayed for, it doesn't mean that God's throne is not there. Just because things are not happening the way we want, things aren't easy, it doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. God's silence sometimes is not the same thing as God's absence. John's throne reminds us of this truth. John is pastorally helping people remember the reality that transcends all circumstances of our situation. When circumstances of life are not going the way you had planned, remember that God is on the throne. When you don't feel close to God, remember there is a reality outside of your feelings because God is on the throne. If you were cut from the team this week, remember, God is on the throne. When you feel like you are the only one without a friend, remember that God is on the throne. It's easy to forget, but remember, remember the throne and the one who sits upon the throne. It's easier to believe that the game of thrones has to be played to change your circumstances, but don't, don't play that game or any other game. With God, there is no game. John has reminded us that no matter what the circumstances, no no matter the political situation or the storms of life, no matter if you have a lot or you have a little, no matter if you are popular or no one knows your name, God is on the throne and this God is in control and this God is for you all the time, in the good times and in the hard times. This last year, say over the last 13 months, I lost about nine people in my life that were close to me. Well, I lost family members, I lost friends, I lost colleagues, I lost mentors, I lost my dog. (laughs) It was a hard, it was hard. It's hard sometimes when you're sad to get up and preach. But I gotta tell you what got me through. It was coming in here with you. And just for that 20 minutes in chapel or during the gathering to come in here and to know that we can come before the throne. And that all of my pain and all of my sorrow and all of my sadness, I could put there, that it was there. And I could do that in the context of brothers and sisters in Christ. And I can do that I can do that authentically because there is a reality that governs all other reality. And John says that that reality is centered by a throne. And so if you're somewhere tonight where you're not feeling close to God or maybe you're anxious because the reality that uh, college is not camp is settling in and you don't get to pack up your bags and go home, that you're here, like this is, this, is, this, is, this is your life. If that's starting to settle in and, and you feel anxious, I want you to take a deep breath. And I want you to close your eyes and I want you to see the throne and the one who's seated on the throne and the one who's seated there looks like Jasper and Carmelian. That's, that's the reality that can center your life no matter what your circumstances are. You see, the throne is fundamentally an invitation. It's an invitation to participate in the deep reality of the cosmos. 
but not an abstract reality. It is a reality that makes it personal. The one who sits upon the throne, once upon a time, took on flesh. The word, it says John, became flesh and lived among us. This God of the cosmos becomes particular in a place and a time and was given the name Jesus. This table, this table is an invitation like the throne. When we come to this table, we are before the throne. Because you see, the one who sits upon the throne is not about power for power's sake. The one who sits upon the throne renounces all power and gives his life so that you and I can have life. And that's what this table allows us to participate into. Every time we come to this table, we are participating in the deep reality of the kingdom of God. And that same Jesus who walked along Palestine and the highways and the byways is the same Jesus through the Holy Spirit who's here now. Isn't that amazing to think about? What we do at the gathering is we come to this table and it is an invitation to you. And we do so with a deep prayer of thanksgiving. And I invite you to pray that with me now. Friends, people of hope, my people, the Lord be with you.